Good morning. <laughs> sound like Anglicans. You're sitting at the back and you mumble. Good morning. I first spoke at Tyndall 11 years, two months, and nine days ago when planes were crashing into the Twin Towers in New York City. And chapel, during this time of year, which is attended moderately, started to fill up and fill up, and you could feel the tension in the room. This morning, as I was driving up, I was listening to urgency from the UN and from other people dispatching, dispatching uh, Hillary Clinton, uh, to Jerusalem and then to the Gaza because bombs are raining down on Gaza and rockets are raining down in Israel. And the commentator said quite clearly, if they cannot get this resolved in the next few hours, whatever will happen. So whether it's 11 years, two months, and nine days ago or today, we're still confronted with a world where, which no one knows what's going to happen next. But here's the good news. The message is the same. It's a different talk. You'll be pleased to know for those who were here that time. But the content is the same, and that is the great gift that we have in Jesus. The content and the message is unique, but it's also consistent, and it gives us the ability to persevere. So in that light, my friends, I'd ask you to bow your heads and let's pray. Living God, open your word to our lives, our lives to your will, and may we faithfully follow you wherever you may call. All this I pray in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Rainer, can you put back up that first slide, please, from that first reading from Mark? This is an institution of higher learning, and uh, so I thought today would be so appropriate that I can impress you with my lack of knowledge, but by simply quoting two great men of history. The first is, has been called the greatest scientist to ever live, Sir Isaac Newton, of course, the man who understood first and promulgated the laws of gravity and so many other things. But what most of us don't know, know about Isaac Newton from the late uh, 17th, from the 17th century is the fact that he was a brilliant theologian and he had this to say about understanding theology. Truth is ever to be found in simplicity and not in the multiplicity and confusion of things. Let me say that again. Truth is ever to be found in simplicity and not in the multiplicity and confusion of things. Well, that's the first great man. The second one said these words in March of 2000, and I'm referring to Fred Rogers. And Mr. Rogers said, life is deep and simple, and what our society gives us is shallow and complicated. And again, life is deep and simple, and what our society gives us is shallow and complicated. This morning, we have a world that is complicated, but often it feels shallow. It's a world where we get most immersed in the, in the daily round and just the grind of getting by that, that we forget about or, or we lose sight of what's important. I couldn't help but sitting at the back and praying before you all started coming in and, and the announcements started to flash up. And, and I know that when the writing center expands their hours and when Christmas ex exam schedule goes up by the registrar's office, I, I know that you are all immersed. <laughs> And you're feeling that. The blush of that first week back is worn off. You know, the excitement of what the new year will bring, about meeting new friends, about doing all sorts of things, that's gone because you're simply trying to get through. Make sure your assignments are handing in. And perhaps nodding the most today are the professors who are sitting there going, yes, who have to mark what you produce. But all of us are simply trying to get through. And that's what happens naturally in this season. 
So this morning, what I want to do is to go back and recover something that is simple. Now, be careful here. This is not simplistic. This is actually quite profound because it is simple. For it is easy, as I said, to lose sight. For our vision to be dimmed about our passionate center. And so this morning, I want to go back and I want to look at three things. And and I'm not usually one who alliterates, but I'm going to today. I want to look at a person, I want to look at a place, and I want to look at a purpose. Sounds so contrived, doesn't it? So bear with me. The reading we have today is from the first chapter of the Gospel of Mark. And if you know anything about Mark, Mark was writing to a persecuted church. Christians who were gathered likely in Rome who were on the edge. The Romans were exceptionally efficient when they wanted to get rid of anything, whether it was a person, a nation, or certainly a belief system. And so they were on the edge, perhaps at best to be arrested and jailed, but likely at worst to be killed and tortured in horrendous ways that our contemporary ears cannot easily hear. And so they're waiting, they're looking for some good news. And Mark, taking that eyewitness account of Peter the Apostle, writes them this incredible gospel. And he writes, if you look in the original language, with an incredible economy. His favorite words are, and then, but, and he's always moving, there's always something happening. He doesn't waste it, he doesn't worry about his superfluous prose. He simply wants to get to the message. And here we have this remark. This is only starting in verse 14. This is at the very beginning when he starts to talk. After John was in prison, Jesus goes into Galilee and proclaims the gospel, the good news of God. Notice there's nothing in Mark about Jesus being credentialed, ordained, or having a degree, or anything like that. He simply walks in and look at what he says. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe in the gospel. And then to that next slide, what happens is fascinating to me anyway. Now remember, Jesus is raised in a landlocked town. He's the son of a carpenter. He's likely really good at building things, but he goes up to professional, hard-bitten fishermen. Have you ever been around a professional fisherman? If you have an East Coast, you know, it's kind of, I want, to, want you to try something. Why don't you go up and say, hi, I'm from Toronto. And I'm here to tell you how to fish. And uh, they'll either use an expletive and send you on your way, or else they'll say, okay, come and show me, laddie. And uh, what's interesting to me is Jesus has no qualms. He goes up to these men who are are likely very good at what they do. It's passed on from generation to generation. And he simply speaks into their lives in a way with such great clarity. He sees Simon, his brother Andrew, casting a net. They were fishermen. Jesus says, come, follow me, and I'll turn you into fishers of people, of men and women. But look what happens in verse 18. And at once, at once they left their nets and they followed him. And then he goes further down the lake in that next slide. And he sees James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, the boat preparing their nets. This is what fishermen do. They fish and they prepare. They fish and they prepare. And without delay, Jesus calls them. And what happens? Again, they left their father Zebedee. Not only did they leave their, their, their family given and licensed and authorized profession and vocation, they left their father. You just don't do that. They left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed Jesus. Well, as I said this morning, I want to look at something that that is very important for us to hold on to. Because my experience of 30 years in this business is the fact that if you don't get the person right, if you don't get the place right, if you don't get the purpose right, you're not going to get right. And when I talk to folks who are in the glue, whether that's pastorally, relationally, health, no matter what it is, it's usually one of those three things that are out of kilter, out of whack. So I want you to bear with me. And if you tune out and kind of zone out and think this is all far too simple, that again is your right. But I encourage you just to listen, not to me 
but listen to God speak. The first, of course, is this person, this Jesus. If you have not encountered or if you have not engaged Jesus to really come to understand who he is and as scripture reveals him, in the context, by the way, of the Trinity, let's be really careful about setting Jesus up as some lone and singular figure. He is always in the context of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, highly and deeply relational from the Godhead through to his relationships with us here on earth. But look at his teaching, for example. If you've ever read the first few chapters of the Gospel of Matthew, 5, 6, and 7, we have what we call, of course, the Sermon on the Mount. It is the most challenging document you will ever read. And yet somehow we think it's just something benign. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who... Isn't that sweet? And yet if you look at it, if you really read it, if you allow that to get under your skin and into your heart, your life and your worldview will be revolutionized. You will see people and this world and the brokenness, whether it be in the Middle East, whether it be in your own home and your own heart, changed. If we look at his works, he turns water into wine, sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf, raising the dead. Now think about that for a minute. Can you imagine going to a party with Jesus? Can you imagine going to a hospital visiting with Jesus? Could you imagine going to a funeral with Jesus? What might happen? You see, we've lost the, 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 this understanding that We've lost our belief that Jesus is still in the dead-raising business. See, that's what happens when we get immersed. That's what happens when we get distracted and fragmented by the, the daily grind, the mundane. We lose sight of who Jesus really is. And not only from what he did, but what he is doing. His unique character. He walked the talk and talked the walk. There was an integrity of his actions and his character aligned. Don't we often say we, we, we think the character of politicians and church leaders and, and educators and all sorts of folks ought to be raised, and yet we ourselves, as followers of Jesus, need to understand that we too are called to that same unique character. His resurrection is really so remarkable. He appeared to over 550 people 11 different times over six weeks. It's so remarkable that he is alive the immediate effect and birth and growth on the early church, but the primary one, then and now, is both the personal and the community of experience of encountering the living Jesus. And again, one of the dangers, the deep dangers for those of us who profess to follow Jesus is we lose sight of that intimacy. You ask a couple who's been married a long time what it takes to stay married and not bored. And it's not about the sex. It's, it's not about buying gifts. It, it's about that profound respect and understanding of what the other has to offer because you're only concerned for the other. See, that's the relationship with Jesus. He's concerned for you as the other, but you then are called in turn to be concerned for him, the other, and for the others. That's why when Jesus is challenged, what are the greatest commandments? What did he say? Love God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul, and love your... You're still Anglicans. You're just sound asleep. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's not about lowering your self-esteem. It's not about self-deprecation. It's simply about putting the emphasis on the right syllable. It's about getting it right. It's about focus on the other. And that's who that person of Jesus is. And I would encourage you, when you're feeling bogged and mired, and as one student so eloquently put uh, to me just uh, two weeks ago, uh, Dr. Parker, I'd like to have this on time, but I am up to my butt in alligators right now. And I thought that was just such an apt description of how a student feels in mid-November. So no matter what various parts of your anatomy are in right now and up to, I just want to encourage you, do not lose sight of the person of Jesus Christ. 
because he hasn't lost sight of you. That's the first element of good news. The second is the place, this kingdom of God that Jesus talks about, that he goes around telling all these people, behold, the kingdom of God is here. Look at what he says. The time is fulfilled. Not might be when you get holy enough, when you get good enough, when, when things work out for you all, you got a good job and happy relationship and married or whatever it is you're looking for and expecting, but the time is fulfilled now. The kingdom of God is near. It is at hand. The time has now arrived, but it unfolds at his discretion. God wants to reveal his almighty power in the world, and he does it in a pathetic, powerless way. He does it through service. He does it for being the least he does it for being concerned. Think about that. Our whole world, our celebrity culture, everything that we do is based on what I can get. Because you swim in the waters. We swim in the waters, especially in the West, in North America, of you do not have enough. Did you know that? You don't have enough. You're not smart enough. You're not good looking enough. You don't have the right body shape. You don't have the right mind. You don't have the right degree. You don't have the right anything. But you know something? Trust Barry. I'm here to get it for you. For only $49.99, I can fix all your problems. Right? That's the world we live in, that, that something can be bought and sold at the drop of a hat because you don't have enough. <laughs> and here's Jesus saying that I am invoking a new place, this kingdom, which has more than enough. In fact, it has me. And everyone who sees Jesus and seeks to immigrate into this kingdom has one simple thing to do. That's it. To say yes and to turn to turn a very particular direction, to turn into that true north of turning to the living God through Jesus Christ and saying yes, but that involves repentance. A very uncool word, I know, but it's a word that's absolutely critical. It's a word that acknowledges not who you'd like to be, but rather who you are. You see, there's a difference between remorse and repentance. Uh, Britney Spears, one of our great theologians of our generation, who sings that great song, you know, Oops, I Did It Again? That is the cultural view of repentance, but that's remorse. Oh, gosh, I feel awful, until the next thing comes along. Repentance is taking that feeling, that sense of things not being right, and not turning them in, but rather turning them out, of, of actually changing behavior, of changing the relationships, of restoring things that are broken, allowing God to work in that. The announcement of this new kingdom of God is that God is, is going to rule in history in a new and profound way. And it wouldn't come in naked political or military power. What is the biggest concern in our media today besides the Middle East, which is a military issue? It is about the fiscal cliff the Americans apparently are about to drive over. And the Canadians are in the U-Haul tra trailer behind. And we're going right over with them, apparently. But isn't it interesting that that all the other things that we know interpersonally in our lives matter, that somehow they're trumped by economy and might and so on. Well, Jesus is here to say things are different for those who follow me because your appearance will be characterized by utter powerlessness. And you only need to look through the scriptures and see the trajectory of God's deep concern for the poor, the weak, the disenfranchised, the widow and the orphan. But hearers were to repent and believe this good news, to turn and change direction and say yes to Jesus. As our songs we just sang, that we will follow him. But one caveat, by the way, on that brilliant last song by Chris Tomlin, when he says, I'll follow you with joy, make sure you don't mistake joy for happiness. You'll receive joy, but you won't be happy to follow Jesus in this world because it's tough. And you're not going to be able to do it by yourself. You're not going to do it without a community of faith. 
and you'll never do without the Holy Spirit. You will not be happy. Just a heads up. That's like those warnings on the cigarette package. And the church often does that bait and switch thing. Come to Jesus and you'll be happy. That's bogus and that's wrong. Joy, yes. But joy, my friends, is another sermon. And it's something much more profound and much more life-changing than mere happiness. To enter the kingdom means to believe and trust and welcome the glad tidings that, that this is good, that Jesus is near, God is present. And so in spite of the craziness in our economy, the, the craziness in our world, and, and the craziness in my own life, I can just hold on to that fundamental fact of this relationship with the King of Kings. See, that's the kingdom. Much like an ambassador that you hear will be sent to represent the nation in, in a foreign country, the first thing they do is they present their letters of, of credential to the head of state of that foreign country. So too are you, as a follower of Jesus, like an ambassador. You have the credentials from the king of kings himself, the lord of the universe, and you're saying, I'm here. Not look at me, but rather I'm here to serve and to love in spite of our broken world. In my tribe, we're big into old things, so let me read to you a short portion of a very old prayer. This prayer is about 450 years old. That we give thanks to God for many things, but here's what we most give thanks for. We give thanks above all for thine inestimable love in the redemption of the world by our Lord Jesus Christ, for the means of grace and for the hope of glory. You and I swim in waters that long for grace and a hope of glory. If nothing else, if you and I, of understanding the person of Jesus and the place of this kingdom and being related to the King of Kings, if we can understand that, then my friends, you will be a mean of grace and you will be a symbol of the hope of glory, a good thing. Finally, very quickly, you'll be pleased to know, is the purpose. And the purpose, of course, as we've been singing, we see in our scriptures, is the call to discipleship. And remember that a disciple is one who simply binds himself or herself to the teacher, and the teacher then shapes and forms that student in the knowledge that they believe they require. So when you say yes to Jesus Christ, you are, by definition, saying, I am a disciple, and you are willing in that moment to be shaped and formed by God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to be shaped into something of which you cannot ask or imagine. It won't be simply what you think is right, being a really good person or a righteous person and trying harder and going to church more and doing whatever you're supposed to do more, but rather you will be transformed and shaped. He's going to clean your attic. He's going to renovate your heart. He's going to do things which you can't even see coming. And that's the good news. It'll be painful. It'll be tough. It'll be challenging because there are four things that happen. If you notice, Jesus highlights along the lakeshore with Peter and John. The first is the call. He invites, he summons. It's specific, it's personal, but it's a verb. There's an action. It's not something kind of a feeling. You don't kind of, mm, yeah, God, yeah, okay. And it's how it's often treated today. It's sort of, how, how do you feel about God? You know, it doesn't matter how you feel about God. I hate to break it to you because I had to come to this realization. I, I, I had this profound revelation a number of years ago when I realized God doesn't really care about my feelings towards him. What matters is what he does and, and feels towards me. That I am worth saving. That I am worth redeeming. That I am worth gifting to, to use those gifts to hopefully, God willing, bless others. That it's not about what I think of God, but rather what he has done and does through me. That's the call. It's active and it's dynamic. 
The second element comes from leaving. Notice that they all left. And again, another verb. It means to leave, forsake, abandon. All mutual claims are abandoned. It's interesting. I was watching a clip the other day, and they were, uh, they were talking about to uh, this uh, a Marine, U.S. Marine gunnery sergeant. And uh, the interviewer was saying, so why are you oversubscribed in, in those who want to serve? And uh, he had a very simple, as you can understand, a very simple way of looking at it. He said, well, because we ask of them more than they can give on their own. We take away all the personal identity and we shape them into something so much greater than themselves in community with others. And then we tell them they're not good enough on their own, but together it's amazing what will be accomplished. In other words, the challenge, the bar is set so high that it's impossible for any one person to find it, but collectively and together that bar is reached and transcended. So too following Jesus. By yourself, if we isolate ourselves, we try hard and just do our own thing, that we will never see that, that wonderful opportunity that God has for us to see over the horizon. But together, collectively, as a community of faith, no matter your tribe, no matter your stripe, no matter your background, denomination, or local church, following Jesus is about all of us as the body of Christ, seeing over his horizon what he would have us see. But then as we sang, to follow is key, another verb. Notice all these verbs. It's all about action, to join as a disciple, to cleave steadfastly to one, to conform and be conformed, wholly to the example of Jesus in his living and his dying. But all of this requires a response, and that's the fourth element. You see, Jesus doesn't give you the opportunity to say, sit on the fence and decide later. He says in this moment, what is it that you believe, yes or no? And that's hard for us because often we kind of like to play the odds and see what's on the other side and, and sort of do a cost-benefit analysis and, you know, do the SWOT analysis, strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, threats, sort of figure it all out and sit back and go, okay, Jesus, maybe we'll do this for a while. But in that call, when he calls you and beckons you to leave and follow him, he's given you the opportunity to respond. It's, it, it's a black and white yes or no issue. And that's very challenging to the human heart. Uh, one of the things that I still get to do, years ago I was a firefighter, and so uh, I, I get the opportunity to be a chaplain or a pastor to the Toronto firefighters. And it's very interesting. People say, so how do you talk to guys who really aren't terrible, most of them church-going and, and faith and religion aren't really a part of their daily life and existence? And, and what it took me a while to figure out is that, that firefighters only want to know two things of a pastor or a Christian. Number one is, do you actually believe what you say you believe, and, and does your life exhibit that? So they watch you. They watch you like, like hawks. They just walk to see how you treat each other, how you treat the other guys, how you talk. Not holy. They, they, they really don't like holy things. Um, you know, all the stereotypes of those. But the second thing is this, and it's quite profound. If things go south in my life, if I have a bad call, I, I you know, find somebody dead in a fire, if my wife leaves me, if my drinking gets out of hand, if my kids disown me, like whatever it might be, if, if my life goes south, will you be there with me, as one eloquently put it, as the toilet is flushed. Will you be in the bowl with me? It's a graphic picture, but you get the picture. You see, that's what it means to follow Jesus. And if it means some days just getting flushed with another person, so be it. Because you're trusting in that person and in that place more than this world will ever understand. Sir Isaac Newton said, truth is ever to be found in simplicity and not in multiplicity and confusion of things. Even Mr. Rogers, Mr. Rogers himself, life is deep and simple, and what our society gives us is shallow and complicated. It is good you're at Tyndall, 
because our lives are complex, are fragmented, and often overwhelming, but you actually have permission in this place to go to those basics, to that person, that place, that purpose, to seek and simple, uh, find clarity in, in the person of Jesus Christ, to enjoy citizenship in the kingdom relationship with the King of Kings, and to know that your life has meaning and purpose, a meaning and purpose which has been God-given and God-granted. Friends, in a world that is longing to know means of grace and hope of glory, you have that opportunity to be a part of God's kingdom work. I'd ask you to bow your heads and let's pray. Living God, on this day and all our days, uh, help us to move away from complicating everything we touch and see and think. Help us to see you clearly, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to understand deeply your call into your kingdom to loving you and to loving others. Father, we cannot do this on our own. This is not self-generated. It's not self-taught. It's not self-accomplished. But rather, by the agency of your Holy Spirit, may you bless us, may you encourage us, may you challenge us, may you convict us. Whatever our need, our heart need might be this day, may you do so. But finally, Father, to all these good people here gathered before you, heads bowed, may the peace of God, which passes all understanding, Keep your hearts and minds in the knowledge and love of God and of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. The blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be amongst you and remain with each and every one of you from now through eternity. Amen.